Good morning. morning. And it is, isn't it? It is a great, beautiful morning. I think we went uh, back into summer, right? For the rest of the winter. We are in Exodus 20, and we're dealing with the Ten Commandments. And uh, the one we deal with today is the uh, Second Commandment. Idols. Idols are everywhere here in America. All over the world, music idols like Michael Jackson, even though he's dead, he's still an idol. Britney Spears, <laughs> Madonna, you can go on and on. Some of those are old names. They have newer names come up uh, since then. But Sports idols, Derek Jeter, Peyton Manning, they go on and on. You can go into the fashion uh, idols, Gucci and Armani and Tommy and... TV show. There's a TV show called American Idol. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a hunger, I think, in America to idolize. There's a hunger there. And I guess the deal is, is why is there a hunger for everybody to idolize something or somebody? Well, as we continue with these Ten Commandments, and we pick it up this with the second one, we realize the first one was dealing with the oneness as far as God is one and the uniqueness of God. He is unique. He's the only one. There's no other gods, as he uh, mentioned. Put no other gods before me. So the second command comes in, and it almost seems like it's part of the first, but the, uh, the, the first one is about his uniqueness. The second one is going to feature the manner of worship. Who are we to worship in the first one? How we worship uh, is dealing with that. Worship is vital uh, to Christians. We know that that's our very lives. Worship is, isn't it? Because that's what we do. All day long we are in worship of God. Constantly, every moment. It's not just once a week, twice a week. But it's always concentrating on Him. So it's, uh, it's our very life breath. That's a supreme objective of us all, isn't it? To worship God. For That is how we give Him uh, glory. And worship brings in everything from the mundane to those boring things or the things that you don't really like to do like wash the dishes or do the little chores around the house, picking up the clothes, doing laundry and all that. We still give glory to Him. And that's part of worship there all the way to the highest end. And that's when God's people come together and lift up praises centered around His Scripture. And that is whenever we feel the most about uh, worshiping God. But it's, it's all that. But we want to make sure that we worship the true God, first commandment, and the second commandment is to worship this true God correctly. To worship Him correctly. It's not enough to worship the correct God. God is saying here, we must worship God in the correct way. Uh, we must worship Him acceptably. And of course, that's what uh, He's left for us in His Word to find out how we worship. Um, this commandment just outlaws idolatry. Just nails it down and shows that it has no room whatsoever in believing and trusting God and worshiping Him. And if you look around at 
many people today, they have some kind of vacuum there that wants to worship. And it can be a lot of different things that we worship. We talked about that last week. But people worship Him wrong if they have what is supposed to be the one true God. The physical cosmos, the physical realm, the universe, is all the reality that they know of. Because they see it. They can hear it. They can touch it. Their senses are involved because it's there, so therefore it's real. Anything that's in the spiritual realm then really is not anything that they can come in contact with, so therefore either it doesn't exist or it's something beyond them and they don't want to think about it. And of course that's the way the humanism is. It does not recognize anything beyond the physical realm. And that is one of the reasons why there is idolatry. People want to have something that is real, that's physical, that they can see. And uh, that is just an unreal world to them when you talk about the spiritual realm. And that's how we approach God. Um, that's reality to them. Though. So you can see why there's been idols all throughout the history of mankind. The worldview is really natural in that way, isn't it? Thinking that way, to have something that you can worship. The supernatural is so distant. It would be a lot easier if we had things here that we could see and really experience God. A God is transcendent, isn't He? That means He goes beyond the natural realm. He's holy. He's transcendent. And so if He does that, He goes beyond not only this world, but He goes beyond the universe. He's everywhere, but yet He goes beyond it. So it's like, how does a God who is so far beyond this universe and this physicality, this cosmos that we are involved with, how does He bring forth this teaching of His transcendence before a former group of slaves? How does He do that? He's doing it in the book of Exodus here. He's actually getting on a level so they can understand the God of the universe. Now, the gods of Egypt, they are familiar with. It's been around them all their lives. And God is telling them that they are never to represent the true God by anything. By anything physical. Anything that is created do not have that resemble me. Because it can't. <laughs> there is nothing that can resemble God. So they could not make Him in His image. That's really what He's saying. Now, there's a huge gap between the creation and the highest of His creation, which is us, and who God is. The gap is just something that is way beyond anything we can understand. Us, God, transcendent. But God says, you must know who I am and how to correctly worship me. They don't really know that. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He is spirit. How can you take a physical substance and make it resemble that. He's infinite, eternal, unchanging. 
Infinite. Have you thought about that one? <laughs> of course you have. It goes on for infinity, and if you think about it too much, what do you wind up doing? Crawling underneath the bed reciting the Greek alphabet. <laughs> He's beyond any comparison. He's not found in one place. He's not found in a building. How can we possibly emulate that? We can't. So what do we do with it? Well, let's read this commandment. We read it earlier in uh, the Catechism. And it said in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Boy, from one extreme to the other there, great judgment to mercy. Okay, there's a debate on the numbering of the commandments. You know, the body of Christ has so much trouble agreeing on hardly almost everything. Have you noticed that? It seems like everything that you get into, there has to be some kind of discrepancy. And it, doesn't it drive you crazy sometimes? Why can't we, why can't we just all agree? <laughs> well, the problem is, is that we are man. We are mankind. We're human. Human have sin. They are limited in even the knowledge of who God is. We have the Word of God and everything to go by, but we can't even agree on the Ten Commandments. Yeah, everybody that is a believer has to say, yeah, there's Ten Commandments. But the problem is, is which one is number two? And which one is number nine and ten? What is going on here? Well, the the Reformation really brought back to light the second commandment in its proper order. It had always been here. It's not that it was taken away, but it kind of was. Because to the Catholic Church, there's a section that we just read in verse 3. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. And then 4 through 6 is kind of added on to verse 3 and it's not divided. And so therefore, 3 through 6 is all the first commandment. But that's a problem. Because it had not been thought of like that before. But if you have some things that would contradict what verses 4 through 6 are saying, you would like to kind of push it aside Put it underneath, put it on, you know, dig it and put it into the ground. You know, don't even teach it in, in, in your catechism, you know. And so, therefore, it'll make it a lot more comfortable because it talks about idols here and bowing down to them. Now, to us, this commandment would be very easy to skip because you can say, What relevance does this have to me today? Because we don't violate these graven images. We don't have a golden calf, you know, that we could put up here, uh, you know, every Sunday, bring that along, or some kind of animal or whatever. We don't have those kind of graven images in our homes. I don't think, right? (laughs) But here's the question. How do we think of God? How do we think of Him? Is He just a loving Father 
And because He's the Father, He can excuse us for whatever we do. It's okay. Because He's a loving Father and it doesn't matter because He loves me anyway and He'll bring me right on into the kingdom. So what we can do is we can create Him the way that we want in our minds. And we have just produced an idol. It is going against the Word of God, but if we're not aware of the Word there, or we'd rather just shove it aside, well, this is the way that I would like Him, as so many people do today. I think most people, even today in our country, would say, yeah, they're going to heaven. I've said this so many times, but how many times do they always reply back, but I've been good enough. And then you have to say, according to what standard do you think you are good enough? We know in Scripture it's not even close to that. But how often do people use that? Most of the time they do. Because then they have to be thinking about an afterlife. If there's an afterlife, I mean really an afterlife, according to God's Word, and if there really is a standard according to God's Word, now their lives have to conform to who He is. So that's a problem. And rather than creating Him the way that we want, we have to let Him stand for who He is. We don't want to have some image of Him in our minds that is not true, do we? Anything that's not true about Him, don't we want to erase? Delete it. Hit the delete button. Get that out of here, right? We as Christians want that. But... The Roman Catholics, and to be fair, I, I have to mention the Lutherans too, because they've got the Ten Commandments, I believe, uh, messed up too in the order. I think it's very important that we bring apart uh, this, uh, bring this first commandment as being distinct from the second commandment. They have to split the tenth commandment and make it the ninth and tenth to make it ten commandments. Otherwise, they'd have nine commandments. And if you've ever looked at the tenth commandment, then you have to wonder. How do they do that? I'll get into that later, but anyway. It's forcing the issue. That's the way they did it to make it work out right because they do have images, they do have crucifixes in their churches, in their homes. They have Christ on the crucifix, hanging on the cross like the victory hasn't been done. And so therefore we have a problem. He wants us to worship Him, the true God, the true way. The second command is about worshiping Him in a proper way. Um, I think it's very convenient for them to um, not put too much attention on the rest or verses 4 through 6. And they can just make a real easy one. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before Me, and then you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which would be their second command. You can see that this, uh, this is a problem. It's very clear. It's very clear. They're very distinct. There are not to be any images or any likeness of anything. This is one of the reasons why the Puritans came about. And in the word Puritans is the word pure. They wanted to purify the church. At first, they wanted to start right in the same church that they'd been, in the Roman church, and take out all the things that were not biblical, shouldn't be there, that were idols. And so they started trying to remove all the objects as far as their uh, worship is, is concerned. They wanted to take out the statues. 
wanted to take out the shrines, the altars, the incense, the robes, the holy water, the signs of the cross, genuflecting, go on and on and on with it. The candles, you just go on. You have all these things. When you go into this place, it's elaborate. And you have a tabernacle in there. And you have Jesus Christ that you actually eat. All of these things, where did they come from? Where in the Bible does it ever mention anything? Yes, I know. I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm talking about some other churches that continue to have some of those things. The Puritans wanted to purify the church. And they knew this commandment stuck out boldly before them. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, had really something to say about this. If you ever read the Puritans, I know it sounds like I'm hard on the Roman church sometimes. And I know it can be very offensive. But if you go back to the Reformation and you see the writings of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, John Knox, Martin Bucer, you go on all the way on through and then up to the time of the Puritans, Puritans were very bold about this because they didn't want any more part of this. They took it very, very serious. And they said some things that were bold. All of them said bold things. If you were to read some of the things of the Reformers and the Puritans about the Roman church, you would almost be shocked. But I think it had to be done. Because they didn't get the seriousness of it. They needed to be awakened out of their sleep. It still is the same thing today. It hasn't changed. All those things are there. Here's what Thomas Watson stated. The Church of Rome is reproved and condemned, which from the Alpha of its religion to the Omega is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, altogether idolatrous. Romanists make images of God the Father, painting Him in their church windows as an old man. And an image of Christ on the crucifix. And because it is against the letter of this commandment, they sacrilegiously blot it out of their catechism and divide the tenth commandment into two. Image worship must needs be very impious and blasphemous because it is giving the religious worship to the creature which is due to God only. It is vain for papists to say they give God the worship of the heart and the image only the worship of the body. For the worship of the body is due to God as well as the worship of the heart. And to give an outward veneration to an image is to give the adoration to a creature which belongs to God only. My glory will I not give to another, Isaiah 42.8. Thomas Watson goes on to say, The papists say they do not worship the image. You've heard of this before. We're not really worshiping that, the statues. But only use it as a medium through which to worship God. Thomas Aquinas Catholics said not even to a statue of Christ is any reverence owed since it's only a piece of carved wood. Watson went on to say, for papists to say they make use of an image to put them in mind of God is as if a woman should say she keeps company with another man to put her in mind of her husband. Do you get the idea there? 
That's pretty bold. I know that sounds harsh, but has it changed? I think we just don't go around just playing around with this thought. I think it's uh, something that needs to to be put forth. Uh, The Puritans wanted to purify so much they they would start taking things out of the church. They would get in all sorts of trouble. Oliver Cromwell. Anybody ever heard of Oliver Cromwell? Played a great part in in Britain history. He was actually known whenever he had uh, he and his army had conquered the really the England uh, the Church of England. It was all together, you know, at that time. But he became Lord Protectorate of Britain. He wasn't the king, but he was called Lord Protectorate. That's in 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 an okay way in 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 a government official. But he he had led an army against the king. Because the king had taken so much control over, over all the land and over all the people. They, they were subjects. They were slaves. They were servants to the king. Their land was taken away from them. And the people were so oppressed that he felt that something needed to be done about it. And so did many other people who were Christians. And regardless of whether you think it was right or wrong for him to do what he did... His army was actually made up of of Christians. And they wanted justice for the oppressed. It wasn't a selfish thing. And they later defeated the king and executed him. And you have to remember the political realm at that time and the things that they would do. And I'm not justifying everything here, but at the same time, I am saying it's amazing that this man actually was a very strong Christian. He had John Owen as his pastor, which is quite amazing, one of the greatest theologians that I've ever read. But what was the big issue about this? Well, it had to do a lot to do with worshiping God. They did not want to be underneath the Roman church, or really at that time it was the Church of England, but they still practiced all those things in in, in the church. And of course, there were, you had the, the Protestants already, and you know the Reformation and all that. All that had taken place. This is the Puritan age. Uh, he wanted to worship God, and he wanted to worship Him in the right way. So did others. Many got persecuted. We know John Bunyan and then many others. Uh, hundreds and hundreds were, were thrown into jail because they wanted to worship God in the right way. Many of them were persecuted. Some were killed. That's how serious this was. They took a stand upon it. He and his arm, army went around knocking things down and firing cannonballs just everywhere at everything. I say that in uh, kind of borrowing the language of uh, Alistair Begg. Uh, it, is, it sounds funny whenever he uses his Scottish accent. And of course, that's his homeland in that whole area, but uh, uh, he knew full well what uh, Cromwell was about. And so anything that violated the second commandment they took so serious and it was because of the theological foundation. There was an underpinning there and it was really about worship of God and uh, worshiping idols. So now we move on to the prohibition. We, we look in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You, this is a negative statement. You shall not make. 
bow down or serve them. You shall not make this thing and then go down and, and bow down to it. It prohibits anything that attracts the eyes in order to seduce our souls. And I know in the time that we live in, we are impressed by so many things. You know, a lot of people today are impressed by, let's say, they walk into a great building, and I mean, it's just tremendous. And and there's nothing wrong with having a great building. Don't get me wrong. And the next statement I'll say, there's nothing wrong with having a band, but you can have a band and all of a sudden they're putting on a show and it's elaborate, and I mean, it's just fantastic, awesome, it's great. Uh, You know, and people are swept up by that. And that's a danger that you have any time that you do, let's say, music. You want to make it the best that you possibly can for the glory of God. At the same time, you always run a danger of shifting attention to what you're singing, you know, the song itself, or uh, yourself, you know, hey, look, you know, I'm a musician up here. We as musicians, we run that danger. And, uh, you know, we don't want to stand out. I mean, we could stand behind this right here and you not even see us. But I think that would be a little ridiculous too because then we wouldn't see what's going on. And you know, I think, you know, so you have to stand and do something somewhere. We could sit down. And, but, and it's not trying to be put on display, but it can get to a point where it's drawing attention. And where you draw that line, uh, it's, I think it's very, uh, it's very blurry sometimes. You don't ever want that tension. That's why, you know, Anytime all of us are saying, but you can be swept up by the music. People say, oh, you should have been there. The music was great. Well, how about the preaching? It was okay. But the music, the band was just super, you know. (laughs) The whole idea, guess what? They just produced an idol. Something else. You know, it's not to be, but it's there to help. You know, you could turn anything that's good into that. You know, I think we have a really good PowerPoint presentation. And, you know, I mean, and it's not to show off, but at the same time, we want it to enhance our worship. You know, and it helps us know what the words are, what's coming up, and all those things. And people say, well, I just want to be at a church that's got a, got hymnals. Well, that's good too. You know, I don't want to read out of the hymnal because it's got the notes. Well, that's okay. But all of a sudden, that can become an idol. <laughs> or our presentations can become idols, Right. Even I myself and my studying can become so obsessed into that that just my studying, commentaries and all that can become idols. You see how easy that anything can become an idol? That's how it kind of applies to us in in this sense. You know, there's there's always a danger there that we can make something into that. But he says anything that's attractive, and I know if you go, you know, you see a, a, a building and you go, wow, you can have the oohs and ahs. I don't think we have that problem, you know, but we could. We don't own this building, it's not, but it's 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 comfortable. It's pretty safe, and you know, it's you know, it's, it serves its purposes until the Lord finds us something different. But I don't think there's anything here that we necessarily worship about it. But I could see the danger if we were building a building, how all of a sudden that become uh, an idol. I have been involved with a, a couple of times where there has been a building process for churches. And all of a sudden the attention on the Word of God became less and less to almost nothing and everything was talked about how they're doing in the building and how much money they need to raise and guess what? The Word of God was thrown out the window and, and it really wasn't there much anyway. <laughs> but all of a sudden it was just it was about what they were doing. And that that great building that they had, which turned out to be uh, well over a million dollars, a two million dollar building. And you go, wow, the carpet was plush. 
And man, you know, I mean, just everything was elaborate and ornate, and and you're talking uh, um, what the, the the crystal deals that hang down from the chandeliers. Oh, that's so nice. People can start talking about that. You go into the you got, you got candles, and all of a sudden people are just kind of swayed. It was oh, it felt so good, and that's why people get lured into those kind of things. I know of an individual, he knows about Reformed theology, but he is stuck on such the history of the church, and history is so important. But a lot of that history has been brought in, and not necessarily wrong, not necessarily right, it's not necessarily biblical. But because of that, he has this such feeling, it's so good, that's such a good worship, oh, it's so comfortable. You know what I'm talking about? I think that's idolatry. Make. You shall not make for yourself. Make is a key word here. Because that's what human beings do. We make things. You make cakes. You, know, you make, make food. You, you, know, you just go on and on. You make things all the time. You know? We, make, you know, we, are, we are created to do things out of His creation. Um, all I do usually is make a mess. And Carolyn has to make up the house after I make the mess. <laughs> but, you know, we like to finish things. And that's a good thing. Something is you started. There's nothing wrong with making things. You're going to say, I'm going to walk out of here. I can't make anything anymore. <laughs> I'll just show you how close it is to idolatry if, we, if we're not careful. But we're intended to make things. We're intended to be a cr- creative people. But we finish it. We step back. We look at it. And that's okay. That's good. See the flaws. I say, oh, turned out pretty good. I like that. It'll work. We start admiring our great work. (laughs) And that can be okay to an extent. We are to enjoy it. But if we go over to the point where all of a sudden it's we seem to start taking pleasure in that so much that we become obsessed in that thing that we've made, it could become some kind of an idol. The best way to get rid of that, if you've made some, is eat it. You know, if it's a cake, if you make, <laughs> sorry, about that. get rid of that cake. I'll eat it. I'll take care of it. Right. But by our nature, we do this. We make things, and it's natural for humans to do that. That's okay. But all humans worship, whether it be a true God or not a true God. It might be on the altar. It might be on the shelf. When a trophy, put that baby up there and just keep looking at it. <laughs> or anything we've done. How about, how about the guys, and there's nothing wrong with this, until it comes an idol. How about the guys that go out hunting, shoot a deer and pop that baby up there? It's okay. It's okay. But what if it becomes the main thing? Look how good, look what I can do. Look at this. You know, and it's popped up there. Usually it's put up for decoration. I say that because I've been in houses lately and I, and, and I know people have done it and it's, it's good. It's a good thing. You see what I'm saying? It's so easy to take a good thing, anything, anything. I'm thinking of things that, that we put on a wall. We put a picture, put a plaque. Uh, all of a sudden, what happens? It could be it could be something. How about the TV that we put in <laughs> right there next to the wall? All of a sudden, that thing becomes an idol because we become obsessed with that. I'm just taking ordinary ordinary things. It, you know, it might be in the garage. We have we have a car. 
I'm going to buy a car and man, I'll say, this is the thing that I've been looking for all my life. All of a sudden, what happens? That becomes our precious thing. And all of a sudden, after we've had a little while, it gets a little dent here and there, it gets a little dirty. All of a sudden, the newness is off. It's not so big anymore. You ever notice that? Anytime we get something new, it seems to really just kind of make us fulfilled. Again, is that wrong? Not necessarily. What's he saying? Worship Him. Worship Him in the right way. I know we're not going to take those things and say, this is God. But I'm trying to make this somewhat relevant. And it is relevant, isn't it? Okay, what's the real meaning here? And and we could have stopped at this, done it for about uh, two minutes, and boom, let's go. We're done. But I had to stretch this out. Here's the real meaning. That God alone is to be worshipped without any images. That's too simple. That's the meaning of the text. That's what we try to always get first of all. What is the meaning here? God alone is to be worshipped. The one true God without any images. I don't think we have any trouble with that. Closest, and I don't even think you could call this an image, but this is, uh, you know, like, here's, here they are. This is actually the Word of God put on a uh, Afghan. I think it's pretty cool. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Of course, didn't have the rest of it, but I think it would probably run out of space here and you couldn't read it from there. But anyway, uh, I'm not sure. I think this came from Penny. But, um, Anyway, um, turn to Acts 17. There are two parts to this meaning here. First of all, Israel was not to do as other nations do by worshiping. Don't have those idols. That's simple. Okay, really simple. Paul was very sensitive to the commandments. He's in Athens in Acts 17, starting at, uh, well, let's shorten this down a little bit, start at verse 23. Paul stands up. And he says, For I, as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, physical objects, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, we've all heard that before. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing... They're not worshiping the true God, but they're actually worshiping, okay. But Him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world. He starts with creation. And everything in it, that's you and everything here, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life and breath and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also His offspring." Their own poets had even written this. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. 
Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Wow, he goes to the Gentile world, to the philosophers, and to all the so-called gods that they worship. It must have represented all of the religions of all time. Any god that had ever been worshipped must have been there. And just in case they didn't get it all, they had one that says, and to the unknown god. Just in case we didn't have them all here. (laughs) This is going to cover it all now. Paul takes advantage of that and uses that as a jumping off point. He says, that unknown God? I know who He is. He's a Creator God. So Paul is trying to show that they were sinning against the one true God. And all their gods, all their idols were absolutely worthless. They were meaningless because they were simply made by men. The one true God is the very Creator He gave them life. He gave them breath. He gave them the ability to be able to walk and move about. And everything that we have done this morning, it all came from God. The next breath that you take. And now you're thinking, that came from God. Everything. That is an awesome thing to think about. He is so generous. And that we can actually have the ability to, to move around and do those things. And how thankful we should be. He provides all that. And then Paul says, you need to repent. You need to turn away from the idols and turn to the one true living God and give Him worship in the right way. Well, they couldn't do anything to represent that God. They couldn't do that. You know, idols uh, have sacrifices brought to them. And it's not that the idols speak because they can't. But for some reason, people bring food to these idols who can't eat. And therefore, they worship God. And Paul's like saying, God doesn't need anything. The one true God has everything. As a matter of fact, He has it so much that He even gives us this. All idols, all they do is just limit who God is. And of course it's not Him. Paul had to be thinking of this second commandment. He knew the law. And he definitely knew the Ten Commandments. And he had to be thinking of this when he addressed these Athenians, the philosophers, the religious, the elite of the time. And there he gets gets that opportunity and shares the gospel and talks about the resurrection. And some people want to hear him again. I'm sure others wanted to get him out of there because what he's saying goes far beyond any kind of theology or philosophy they ever had. This sounds strange. You are nuts. You were doing pretty good until you started talking about coming back to life, being dead and coming back to life. We'll hear you later on this. Well, that's one thing that Israel was not to do. And I don't think really they're in that much danger of doing that. That's what the Egyptians did. But as he puts this forth and he has proven who he is, it's the second part that they have so much trouble with. In a very short time, and I mean a very short time, and then all throughout their history. And it's whenever they have the right true God, but they worship Him in an incorrect way. 
correct God, but not correct worship. Now one can have that. They can have the true God. But they try to make uh, make worship Him by making idols and bowing down to them uh, in the name of Yahweh. And that is not going to work. And that is really what God is really stressing here. Uh, you remember that they make the golden calf. When Moses is bringing down those Ten Commandments, he discovers what they have done. And it was all in the name of Yahweh. This is the true God. We want to worship Him. We just want something to kind of help us. That's a serious thing. Um, That plagued them all the way through. There's a guy by the name of Jehu. You guys like that name, Jehu? J-E-H-U. He was so against Baal worship that he wanted to wipe them out. He didn't want people to be worshiping the wrong God, so he had Baal destroyed in Israel. They worshiped the true God, but in the wrong way. Now we see that in 2 Kings. Let's turn there. 2 Kings chapter 10. Later on in the history of Israel here. And pick it up in 10 verse 18. This is about Baal and Baal being worshipped and then Jehu taking charge here. Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal. That's Ahab's the king. A little. They worship Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now he's just saying this in um, um, a way that is getting attention here. Okay? It's not that he's going to worship him, but he says, yeah, watch this. Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. What are you saying here, Jehu? Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively. You know, he's, he's, he's joking with them. He, you know, he's, he's not really going to do it. With the intent of destroying the worshippers of Baal. That's his idea. He's setting them up here. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Okay, let's get a great assembly for Baal. Let's worship him. Yeah, right. <laughs> then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. They all came. So they came into the temple of Baal. And the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out vestments for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord, Yahweh, are here with you, but only the worshippers of Baal. You see what he's doing? If there's anybody... You know, they... They were flip-flopping. There were some people that would come in there and they would... You know, they were kind of worshippers of the true God. They make sure that there's no true worshippers of God. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and it said, If any of the men whom I had brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Don't let any of them get away. Kill them all. 
Now it happened, as soon as he had made an end of offering, the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and of the captains, Go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out, went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. This Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. There it is. It's now a dump. It's a city dump. People walk by there. I think in some translations it might even say like a latrine. They come by there and see there's where they used to worship Baal. That's what people would see there. (laughs) Wow. He just totally destroyed it. Boy, he took efforts to do that. Now there's a Puritan, right? But I want you to notice verse 29. And there's one word that sticks out. It's the first one. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. Do you see what's happening there? Keep on reading. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So you still have this worship of God, but the calves are there tied in. It's a multiple worship. Solomon had done that. What a compromise. So what's happening here? I think it's another illustration of the wrong idea of worship. He did what was right in one thing, but in another one, he got one part right, but the other part he didn't finish. And so he worshipped the one true God, but he allowed the wrong way to happen. In John 4, 19-24, you have the woman at the well and you have Jesus. And by the way, he finally comes on the scene here in mentioning Him. He said, well, we haven't even talked about Christ today here. Well, when you talk about the Ten Commandments, you're talking about Christ because He's the one who fulfilled them. He knows the law. And he knows what idolatry is. He knows what true worship is. And that and is the only reason why we can worship here today. That we can worship Him in spirit and truth because of Christ. Christ is our go-between. He is our mediator. He is God. And He is the proper way to worship God. It's through the person of Him. So we got Him in. It's not just getting Him in. He's, he is in every sense of the Word. The Word of God, isn't He? The woman said to him, okay, they're at the, at the well here. Jesus just happened to be there at the right time, right? Accident? No. He'd already told him, I, I have a need. I must go this way. And where he went is to where someone was going to receive the gospel and he knew exactly who that person was. And it was a woman who had five husbands. Not all at the same time. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. So she shifts it. She says, okay, you're religious. Uh, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews, people that are from Judah, down south, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. We have our place to worship and you guys have that place to worship. It's like saying, uh, well, who's to say who's right here? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. That's why the Word of God has to be held up in high esteem and to be the very central focus in everything we do. It is the standard. And so therefore, I think when you see truth, you also want to be led by not just God's Spirit, but I think there's a spirit that we have in ourselves from already worshiping this God through, through the Spirit, but He produces a Spirit in ourselves, an attitude uh, that we desire to be with Him and His people. And so as we worship there, so they're talking about a place that they go to, and it's not necessarily a building. He says, but it'll be come time when you worship me in spirit. It's no longer, eventually, will it be the temple. It uh, is going to be Jesus Christ. And isn't it great to be able to gather together around the person of Christ, worshiping Him based upon this truth and having this excitement about us the whole idea of spirit. So anyway, that is something that um, Jesus is teaching here. He says, God is not in statues. God is not in paintings. God is not in images. He's found where? Right here. He's found in the Scriptures. So the Reformation stressed the means of grace. The means of grace is through the Word, the sacraments, and prayer. The Word of God is to be in all of us. That is the main thing, for that is how we know to worship God. The sacraments are the Lord's Supper, baptism. Baptism, Lord's Supper. And that's a means, everything is a means of grace as we get to know God, but also prayer. Those items are all part of the church. That's what uh, are must. And those were ordained by God. So that's what the Reformation stressed. To get back to those principles. You have the Word, which is objective truth. And then you have the sacraments, which are sacred things that God has given us to picture what it's about. Here are the pictures. You want to taste and feel and hear. You want to experience something. It's through these objects. When somebody is baptized... In, in actually where there's water, they are what? Showing what has happened to them. The person of Christ has come into their life. They have been baptized into, immersed into, placed into the body of Christ. 
in the Lord's Supper proclaims His death and His resurrection and all the things pertaining to the Gospel. Those are visible means that we have. We get to act those out and do those. And of course, prayer. I think that's very obvious. Of course, prayer there. But it's all based upon the Word of God. The, the, the sacraments or ordinances, if you want to call it that way, are based upon the Word of God. Everything falls underneath that. Now, we go to number two. The importance of the second commandment. Now, images, and there's going to be a few things here that um, I kind of took an outline off of Al Mohler, who has a book dealing with uh, the Ten Commandments that's just come out recently. Uh, Al Mohler is um, president of Southern Seminary, and he has a radio show and does a lot of blogging, a lot of writing, and uh, he's very solid in his theology. He has a really good book on this. But anyway, he said images, first of all, dishonor God. They dishonor God. Second thing they do is they mislead men. Starting with God, idols are dangerous. They dishonor God. We don't want to give false witness to God's character, His very purpose, His will, His glory. So wrong worship is going to imply things about this wrong God. This God is, or idol is substituting for the real God. And this goes into, you know, do we have certain things in our minds about God that really are not true? Every idol lies about the true God. They can't even speak, but they conceal all the truth. They hide the truth about the character of God. Now, what happens though is that people need those particular idols. Now, I'm talking about idols that just expand out. And I'm saying any kind of worship overall over anything because everybody worships somehow. Even an atheist, agnostics, humanist worship something. If it's not self, which that's usually the case anyway, what it does is it gives them peace. It gives them an identity. It gives them meaning. It gives them value. It gives them purpose. It gives them significance because they have this thing to do, this thing to build or make or whatever. They have security in this because it makes them feel accepted in the life that they live. But it takes the place of God. That's serious. This is a command. It's a bold command. If somebody has something they do that replaces God and puts that into their heart, they are breaking the second commandment, which is very serious. There's a great danger in the imagination of God, something that is not true. We know we have, we have idols in our own lives that we try to be. It can be money. It can be this acceptance. It can be the success. It can be the possessions, the cars, houses, collectibles. Even having great knowledge about the things of the world and and even the Bible for that matter. Family can be so much of an obsession that it becomes a God. Jobs can become God, etc., etc. That's how dangerous they are. They can deceive us into thinking things are okay. So we place those there. Is it relevant? Is the second commandment relevant to us? The Word of God is always relevant. The second thing about them being dangerous or or dishonoring God, I mean, idols are finite. 
They're not infinite. God is infinite. He's invisible. He is infinite. And that places a God up much higher than we can imagine rather than bringing Him down to our level and that's what idolatry does. Material things don't last forever. God is infinite. It's a poor substitute to have idols, isn't it? They're meaningless. They will soon go away. They will soon die. They will soon burn up. All created things are finite. Anything that has been uh, made by us, it's finite. God is immortal, immortal. He's invisible. All of His attributes are infinite. Another thing about idols, they're physical. You make They have shape, they have form. Well, how does that resemble God? God has no shape. He has no form. He has no physical aspects. He has no likeness. Remember this in Deuteronomy 4. This is what I think that God is trying to stress. And it's so hard for the human mind to wrap this around. That's why they so often want to make something physical to help remind. Deuteronomy 4. Verse 11 and 12. This is when they're at the mountain. We just had looked this a couple weeks ago. Then you came near, stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. It was scary, wasn't it? And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words. But look at this. But saw no form. You only heard a voice. There was no form there. They couldn't see God. But they saw all the things that He did. And they heard that. And they heard His words. We hear His Word. That's why this is so important to look at it so much every day. Look at it here. Study it. Spend all of our time in it. For it's not stressing His likeness of things, but showing who He is. He is Spirit there. Now, that's one thing about dishonoring God. We'll go to the second one. It misleads mankind. People. Idols are made by people. They sit back. They admire their work on this idol. People take pride in what they make. They admire the work of their hands. And God says that He made us in His image and we cannot make an image of Him. They're delusional. Matter of fact, they're ridiculous. So we go into Isaiah 44. And it's interesting what Isaiah and how he words this. And this was the problem of Israel. They've gotten so much into this idolatry. This is one of the biggest reasons for God bringing judgment upon them. 44 verse 9. And you see how ridiculous it is. And it's like um, after Isaiah says, there's no other God. Verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them, they're useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. 
Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works on one and the coals, fashions it with hammers, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass. Makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself, takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it out of this same thing. You know, this fire they've got going, you know, and bread comes out of there, and also a god comes out of there, and then he works it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire, with his half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied, and even warms himself and says, Ah, oh, I am warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest of it makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. We can keep on reading. It's talking about deception. They're deceived by all this. It's it's a mocking here by Isaiah as he writes by the Holy Spirit. Men make these. Men control them. Men are the ones... Doing this. That's so that we get into the controlling of men. They're moved, they're set on different places, they're hidden, or they're put in display. They don't walk, they don't go from one place to another on their own. Man can come up with his own worship because he has devised his own God. And when you devise your own God and you bring him down to your level, okay, here's some things he says I'm supposed to do. But most other stuff, I can do whatever I want. It really doesn't matter. Because here are the rules. You make your own rules, and guess what? It's convenient to believe in a God, but at the same time, to do anything you desire. And that's what we do at putting them in our own minds and making God the way it is. As long as you have this God in your own making, you can be religious. You can really feel good about it. Men cannot... We know that they cannot manipulate the one true God. But that's what man does with the idols. How convenient it would be to have our own God. Wouldn't that be nice? So easy. But God is the one who controls. He's absolutely sovereign. We don't control Him. He controls us. Over all men. And everything. Whether man wants to admit it or not. And that's the problem. They don't want to admit that. They don't want to hear about Him having sovereignty. Well, it may be, but I don't want to hear about it. As long as I don't hear about it, I'm okay. It doesn't make it okay, does it? Just because He wants to turn a deaf ear to it. Idols depend upon men. They depend upon them making them. They depend upon them feeding them, even clothe them if they do that, and house them. They depend totally upon man. They've got it totally backwards. Religions construct buildings, elaborate temples, and just, you know, I mean, with all the gold and uh, the, the great sites that you have, and then they have to come in and cleanse them, keep them clean, and dust gets on them and everything. Elijah knew 
what the people were doing with Baal as they were worshiping uh, him. He made fun of their idols. Uh, you remember in 1 Kings 18, he's taking on Baal worship. Baal worship is not succeeding. Elijah's winning this thing. Wait till he does his show. Actually, it's God's show. But um, in chapter 18 at Mount Carmel, at verse 27, that verse 26 is pretty good too. Let's read that. So they took the bull which was given them, they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon saying, Oh, Baal, hear us! But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. Here we go. So it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Yeah, can you imagine? He said, where's your God at? There you are dancing and moving around all over the place trying to arouse this God. And he says, hey, crying louder, you know. Where's it? I wonder what he's doing. Well, he must be meditating. Or he is busy. And some translations uh, will bring forth the literalness of this. And he's saying, maybe your idol has gone to the bathroom. I don't know if your translations will say that, but he's busy. <laughs> Maybe it has other needs. <laughs> the need to be thrown out the window. But Elijah's saying here, hey, maybe it's doing some other things right now, and that's why it's really not answering here. <laughs> you know, it says that facetiously. Those gods are actually on a level of a man. And they start with making Idols that look like men in gold. You remember uh, the time of Daniel, and uh, there was going to be an image made, ninety feet tall, that great big statue, and gold plated and everything. Can you imagine that? But then eventually it turns into animals, down into insects, and you have millions of gods. The Hindus have millions of gods, and because they uh, know that. Uh, Cows are sacred. Therefore, they can't eat meat. They starve to death. They can't kill the rats who come in and destroy all the food that has been deposited in there by maybe well-meaning countries like the United States. Get into the grains and such. And so therefore, it's their own problem. They have the wrong God, so therefore they are in the wrong consequences. Now what about people who are, who are true believers there that have to suffer those consequences? That is true. I know, and you go into Africa and see some of the things that they worship there. And the reason they're in a, such a situation they are, they, as a nation, did not give thanks to God. And so therefore we see the results of what, as what happened. And eventually, that's what this nation will do. It'll, it goes to the idols of man, to animals, to insects, and then their lifestyle starts showing it, and we already see that. You know, homosexuality, and lesbianism, and on and on. And that goes into the next problem here of uh, misleading men. When you look at an encyclopedia, in which you've seen pictures dealing with idols, you'll find grotesque and obvious perversion. Twisted. There seems to be a connection of idol worship and perversion. Almost every time you see these idols, you see 
just terrible, just gross things. I don't even have to mention it. The way one believes determines the way one lives. What you believe is going to determine how you behave. And I think you see it in Exodus chapter 32 immediately after God or God has told them about the law or Ten Commandments and then it's going to be written down. In Exodus 32, we get this report at verse 4. This is the golden calf, okay? And this is Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is your God. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Yahweh. You get that? Capital letters there? Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They ate and drank. They feasted. They drank and drank. They got drunk. They played. They played the harlot. They played in a sexual way. And that's the kind of things that happened immediately after worshiping Yahweh, but in the form of a calf. A calf, they say, well, that speaks of strength and might. And we saw it in Egypt, and man, that was the number one God. You know, this, this calf, that, I mean, that's awesome. A golden calf. We're worshiping the true God. And even Aaron, the priest, he's going to be a priest, is involved in this. Anyway, I think that is um, something that opens the eyes to what happens to when one worships the wrong way. They live the wrong way. So what a demonstration there. Um, about ready to close here. Idols allure men visually. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Idols are seen but not heard. God is not seen but heard. They heard Him. They heard His words. We hear Him through the Word of God. The visual takes the place of words. Words are important. Once the visual element is erased, it's like there is an alluring. The eyes have eye candy all around. And so if you can have more objects and you have the gold here and there and you have a tabernacle there, you can all the vestments, the garments, the candles, the incense, the smells and everything, you've, you've been in, in those churches. And some people are just swept up by it. Others are really turned off by it. First time I went in, I was scared to death. What is this? I started asking, what's that? Well, that's a tabernacle. What's in the tabernacle? Well, that's where God lives. It's where Jesus is. Wow. The visual. Outward visible things really impress us. 
as I'm saying as humans, impressive religious decor that can be. Visual beauty can lie and it can deceive. And in our world, which is a very visual world, which is great, I mean, that's, that's a blessing God gives, we can, over, we can abuse the things that God has given us in the sense of letting that take over rather than the true worship of God. The last um, couple of verses here, or the last part here, I'm going to cover very quickly due to time. And it's about warnings and it's about promises. And he says, okay, um, verse 5, or verse 6. It's in the the middle of verse 5. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. See, there is a merciful and a gracious God there because every time that He gives commands, every time that He gives something for people to do, He gives us the power to do. We're able to do those things because of Him. If there's judgment being mentioned, you don't have to look too far to see His grace, to see His mercy. And you see it right there in the midst of two verses. Huge, terrible judgment, but yet the grace of God. And it's a matter of obedience. God is a jealous God. Uh, that's a marriage metaphor there. There was a spirit of adultery that Israel constantly had throughout their history. When it says that God is a jealous God, can you imagine a husband? And having a wife uh, here and then saying, okay, listen, um, that's okay for her to have another man at the same time. Uh, there is no way that I would ever let that happen. You men... You would not want any other man to touch your wife, right? And that's what God is saying there. I'm jealous. That's a good jealousy. There's a bad jealousy where you're just jealous over every little thing which there's nothing to be alarmed about. But um, those kind of things. There's ancestral sins. And you say, what about this fourth generation and everything? Uh, What's going on here? Well... It goes all the way into the extended family. They'd have four generations, and they'd even, you know, live in the same area and such. But they'd have influence on others. God will judge idolaters, and if you have the influence of what your family has done, and you continue in that, you're going to follow in the same pattern and in the same judgment that they have. Judgment follows right on down the line for those nations who have worshipped other gods. Every idol comes down to really a love of self. And so if your parents have a love of self and never teach you about God, unless you're opened up to truth, you're going to follow the same thing that they do. But God can break that mold too. It's not a curse that's coming from some kind of a magical curse here that Satan has put on people that some people teach today. But the children, grandchildren or parents who follow after gods, they have a hard time accepting that truth. But anybody is going to have a hard time accepting that truth unless God comes in and does a work. It's not that they're punished for the guilt of their parents. We're never punished because our parents did that, so therefore we're punished because we're punished because of our own sin. But they're preconditioned by their parents in the world view that they have. And many of you here might have been raised up where your parents didn't teach you 
But God broke that mold. Maybe their parents didn't. Their parents and their parents. Parents help shape the way that children will think. If there's disobedience, it's going to have effect for a long time. What about grace and mercy? Well, there's a promise to those who obey. And He has steadfast love for us. Those who read the Word and they know God and He's a true God and they worship Him in the correct manner. And He blesses those who do that. That follow His way. So it's by His grace and His mercy and His love that we have revelation of Him and we desire not to have idols and to worship Him the wrong way. We're all that way. So we are to use that in the way to glorify God. He made us for His glory. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer.